Let's bow our heads and pray together. Lord God, as we come to your word, uh, we want to feel as much together as we've just been in uh, talking to one another. We thank you that your word uh, unites our planet in those churches that have been praying, our Father. And we ask that your word would change our lives, even tonight, that Christ may have all the glory. Amen. Okay, easy question to begin with. Um, hands up if in, in any uh, employed or volunteer or study context, you have ever been in an interview. Thank you. That was, that was fairly easy. Um, a while ago, uh, I, I have to run various interviews uh, in my job uh, here and, and in other places. And um, someone said to me with kind of massive um, confidence from their how to be a good interviewer training, said, what you need to remember, Alan, is that the best predictor of future behavior is past performance. Um, I think I know the answer to this as well, but can you just put your hand in the air if you've ever heard anyone say anything like that? A few, it's all right, don't, don't, I'm not going to jump on you, don't worry, you can put your hands in the air. There's a few over in that corner. Okay, thank you. Some of you may even have quoted it yourselves. It is a very well-known interview factor, which is why when you go to an interview... They will say, yes, we're not terribly interested in what you're passionate about. We're not terribly interested in what you're enthusiastic about or the wonderful vision you've got. What we want to know is what you did last Friday. Because the best predictor of future behavior in the job that we're interviewing you for is your past performance. Not from Hebrews 11, it isn't. Without fail, please turn to it. Where is it? Mostly on page 1210. Page 1210. Without fail, every single person in this chapter would say, the best predictor of future behavior is future promise. We can begin begin, uh, with Moses. Most of these people, incidentally, had really rubbish past behavior. Uh, We've got a prostitute in here. We've got the guy who was the son of a prostitute. Um... Uh, there's uh, weaklings. Um, uh, past performance was rubbish. Um, but uh, let's begin with Moses. Uh, the outlook of, for whom wasn't good. Um, born as a slave uh, to his parents. Uh, just very quickly, if you'll even remember them, you don't really need to remember those. Moses' parents, we're told, were not afraid. Actually, this is on page 1209. Um, no, it isn't. 1210. Sorry, yes, you're right. 1210, verse 23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born. Why did they do that? Because they weren't supposed to have kept a boy child. The midwives of Egypt had been given instructions, kill all the boy children, uh, because you're getting too many, and it's, uh, if we have too many boys, then there'll be social problems down the line. Still a well-known phenomenon. Uh, they reckon there's going to be all kinds of trouble in China, as uh, the population uh, goes through through its twenties, uh, uh, and at that point uh, they will notice all the girl children who have been put to death uh, in favour of the boys, 
and there will be terrible social problems because there won't be enough girls to go around. And the boys will start competing, and there will be real riots in cities just because of the sheer numbers involved in China. So the pharaoh of Egypt knew about social problems uh, and so wanted to knock off the boys. Uh, but they, the parents of Moses weren't afraid. They hid him for three months. Uh, faith conquers that fear. Secondly, the path that Moses uh, took. Uh, verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, a bit of a shift, if you're not familiar with that story. He grew up, uh, for those, well, didn't grow up much in three months. Uh, he was the son of uh, slaves. Uh, they, they hid him. Pharaoh's daughter found him in a basket, famous story, uh, brought him up as her own. So he had all the privileges of being an Egyptian prince, but he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and he chose, it says, to be ill-treated along with the people of God, rather to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. Not that being a prince in Egypt was necessarily sinful, but Moses had been called by God. Moses had been called from the burning bush, and Moses was told, you are going to lead my people. So for him it would have been sin to ignore that call. He had a choice. He could go back to the palace and carry on being a prince uh, as the uh, son of Pharaoh's daughter, or he could lead this bunch of rabble. So faith at that point, having conquered fear, it guided his choice, and faith we're told, is the reason why he did one thing rather than the other. Then later on, verse 26, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, and they were considerable, because he was looking ahead to his reward. So his parents, his path, and his prize, the reward of faith was going to be greater. To do what God wanted him to do, even if it led to social disgrace than it was going to be just to enjoy the treasures of Egypt, which would have been a very considerable reward. Let me just take a moment on one uh, little sort of question that may go through, briefly pass through a number of minds here. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ. Uh, well, yes, Moses did live before Jesus. So, in what sense was Moses... Uh, disgrace uh, for the sake of Christ. Well, there's a couple of things it could mean. It could mean, well, uh, well, folks, as I'm writing to you, uh, he regarded disgrace for the sake of the one we now know as Christ, but he in his time actually understood simply to be uh, the call of God on his life. But we have come to realize that that kind of suffering and disgrace belongs with Jesus. So it was kind of Christ-like. Or it could be a bolder claim, and it's a, a not insignificant claim, that actually Moses knew precisely what was going on. And there is in Hebrews this consistent theme that even those in the Old Testament knew what they were looking forward to. Not necessarily that there'd be a baby born in Bethlehem and all of that, though there were prophets for each of those elements but rather that there was a solution coming, one in whom they could put faith. 
and that for them, even in the very earliest days, that action of putting faith was inevitably putting faith uh, in a God who would send Jesus. How much they knew of his person, it doesn't claim. But it does claim sometimes that there's a, a stronger sense of God's future activity than we might have expected. Then finally, just within Moses' story, by faith, verse 27, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger, he persevered because he saw him who was invisible. Contradiction in terms, he saw him who's invisible. But he kept doing that and he kept going, uh, despite the fact that the people in the wilderness, the people he was leading, were a rabble, they constantly rebelled, they constantly whined, um, they had absolutely none of the sense that you would like them to have had, as you might imagine the story of, great, Moses is leading us away from slavery. That was not their kind of general demeanor. Moses persevered then. And all of those things, the faith conquers fear, faith guides choices, faith looks to a reward, and faith enables perseverance. All of those things are then replicated in all the other stories that come through this chapter. Firstly, the people in the wilderness. We don't actually hear much about the wilderness until they kind of get to the other side of it, and we come to Jericho, the story of Jericho. At the Red Sea... Um, uh, sorry, verse uh, 29, at the, the beginning of their wanderings, they passed through the Red Sea. They chose to do that, reckoning a, a faith that the water would not come back on them in, in exactly the way that it did do later on the Egyptians who tried to do so but were drowned, according to the verse. And then uh, after all the wanderings, after a whole generation, the walls of Jericho fall, verse 30, they, they sing down the uh, walls of Jericho. They are not afraid of what was a mighty city. Uh, and although they had significant forces, it was well within the bounds of possibility that they would have been the ones crushed rather than the Jer- Jericho uh, inhabitants. Uh, Jericho is um, opened to them by the activity of this prostitute, Rahab, uh, you can check the story, just uh, look up Rahab or somewhere, uh, in, probably in Wikipedia for all I know. I was going to say a concordance, but Wikipedia is probably quicker. Um, uh, Rahab the prostitute let uh, the spies who'd spied out Jericho uh, stay with her and escape. Uh, and what they learned enabled uh, all kinds of things to happen. And she was preserved, though everyone else was put to death. And then we get two big sections opening up in the uh, chapter. Verse uh, 32. What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon and the man that we used to call Barak until uh, Martin turned up and because of Mr. Obama, probably he said Barak, I notice we now say. So we're all going to say Barak from now on. So Gideon, Barak... Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. (laughs) And for the next few verses, what we get is the story of faith as success. Success as we might understand it. Verse 33, what did they do through faith? They conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, 
quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. That's not bad just for a Tuesday. That was the the list of the things that all those people got wrapped up in. Some of them were prophets. Uh, They gained, those those would be those who who gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, someone like Daniel. Uh, uh, Others were great warriors uh, and powerful in battle, routed foreign armies applies to those. Then there's a little hinge. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Verse 35, a couple of widows in the story, uh, stories around one kings, two kings, received back their dead, raised to life again. And then we get faith as failure. Verses 35, uh, second bit of 35, through to 38. Some were tortured, refused to be released, that they may gain a better resurrection than the ones we've just heard about, who's, uh, the widows who got their husbands back, but only for this life. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison, stoned, sawn into. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, and so on. Some of them we can identify from the biblical record. Jeremiah was stoned. There was a legend that Isaiah had been sawn in two. Uh, others were uh, threatened and put in prison. Some went about in sheepskins and goatskins. We know that about uh, Elijah. But also, in that, the little bit of the Bible that comes from, well, the Old Testament finishes about the year 400 BC. Obviously, the New Testament starts around zero. But in, the, in that gap, there was one period in which uh, Jewish uh, partisans stood up for their Jewish heritage. It was the period of the Maccabees in the face of tremendous oppression. And some of this material comes from that period. Uh, those who were uh, put in prison, those who were put to death by the sword, those who were destitute, persecuted, and ill-treated. Faith turns out to be both success and failure. And what holds them together is this. The ones where there was success, as the world would count it, were all taking a huge risk, which was only a hair's breadth away from failure. And that hair's breadth was turned by the breath of God. So whether it was success or failure in the end, the point is it was God that was at work. Both success and failure were guided by the promise. The successes by promises that would happen in this life, Failure by promises that would happen in another life. And it was in the period of the Maccabees that we begin to get this notion of a resurrection to something else. A different kind of life. Well, I reckon, if we just think about what we've covered quickly so far, that is a different kind of world of faith from what we experience today, at least as those around us understand it. I don't know if you've ever had one of those kindly people say to you, I wish I had your faith. Well, now you know what you can say to them. Yes, and then you could get sawn in half too. 
because that's what faith does, according to this passage. Faith has become now a present experience, a belief in something, instead of which, according to Scripture, it is a belief that someone is out there interacting with us such as to validate uh, in us what would be really stupid behavior if he wasn't real. It's not belief in God, faith. According to this, this is a belief in a God of the past and the present and the future, especially the future. A little while ago, the, one of the huge leisure companies, I think it was, in those days it was Grand Metropolitan, uh, unveiled a new name for itself, uh, and it became the company Diageo. And their tagline was, uh, every day, pleasure everywhere. You couldn't do much better if you wanted to kind of, okay, what would be the flip side and the opposite of Hebrews 11? Well, we move to the end of the text, and we discover that they didn't get what was promised. They got, according to verse 33, which is in the success passage, uh, they gained what was promised. But then, in uh, verse 39, we discover none of them received what had been promised. How do we hold those th- two things together? Well, if you look at the promises in verse, in, around uh, verse 33, that's when God is promising, actually, if you do this really silly thing, Gideon, if you get rid of half of, uh, more than half of your army, I will give you success in battle. So Gideon did the silly thing he was supposed to do, and God gave him success in battle. So he gained what was promised. The others, where it comes to the failure, they did not gain what was promised, because the promises there are talking about something much bigger than you could gain even in a battle with Gideon on your side. That's where we move into territory of the better resurrection. Not just, isn't it wonderful, says the widow, my husband is back to life, but the better resurrection when someone has been killed and isn't coming back to life, but the better resurrection is the other side of death for eternity. God defers the fullness of the promise, and the fullness of the promise is in Jesus. Remember, if you've been with us in in, uh, Hebrews, Jesus is the perfect priest that has the Uh, operating in the perfect sanctuary, offers the perfect sacrifice, and so on. God defers the fullness of the promise until you, the generation of the readers, firstly, uh, the generation to whom Hebrews is written, and then us, come along. And the writer wants to say, listen, if they, these guys I'm writing about, and women, did everything uh, that's here without the perfection of the promise, then you who have had the perfection of the promise in Jesus, you can keep going. And that will be the kind of theme that takes us forward in the next couple of weeks. The perfection, so that only together with us would they be made perfect, verse 40. The perfection is not in them, but it's in the event that has done everything that God could ever do. And it is in that sense perfect the putting away of sin, the consecration of ourselves to the service of God, our glorification still to come as God's children. That's perfect. There's nothing wrong with that work. And to that extent, therefore, what he has done in us is perfection. But it comes with Jesus' notice, and it matters 
because we may be tempted when dealing with faith to seek to convince the world that faith matters only in terms of, say, verses 32 through to 34, only in terms of success. We may want to say to those we care about, you know, yes, it it is nice to have faith. Thank you for asking. Um, uh, Let me tell you, though, that faith matters because of this wonderful thing that happened to me last Tuesday. I, I was comforted. I got an answer. I learned of some security that I hadn't had before. I have this tremendous sense of being looked after. Lewis Phillips, the uh, guy who won silver on the pommel at uh, the Olympics, um, uh, some of the Christian newspapers was getting very excited because he made this tremendous confession of deep faith in the person of Jesus Christ when he said, I think there might be someone up there looking after me. Papers got very excited about that. Uh, Poster boy for the Olympics, poster boy for faith. No, wrong. Faith matters still because of the things we can't see. The comfort that doesn't come, the security we don't feel, the answers we don't receive. We cannot see Jesus. We can't see him in his perfection on earth or right now in his perfection in heaven. We are those who not seeing yet believe. So next Tuesday may not matter that much. Don't be embarrassed to be unworldly, to have your eyes fixed on Jesus, and to make your faith claims not depend upon the way things look to be in this world. Well, I, I, I read all this stuff in chapter 11. And at one level, I have to say, yes, I know it's church, and I know it's what we're supposed to read, but when we get out of here, isn't it just going to sound rather silly? What can it say to students with futures ahead of them, with choices? Well, it's okay for students. Uh, they're single. They're able to be wacky and radical and full-on. So they can go and do weird things in far-off places. Okay, fine. So what's it going to say then to suburban humanity like me, settled uh, with slippers and evening papers, generally content with the life to which we've come? Together, how will we respond to this alarmingly radical chapter? Well, next week we'll take us into into some of the particular stresses of the Christian's life of following Jesus. Let's remember that all this is deliberately extreme from the writer. If this life could persevere in faith, how much more can your more ordinary one? But I want to finish by looking at two lifestyle choices. First, do we all have to stop the mouths of lions? That is, am I right to feel deeply that my Christian life does not match up to my inner Bear grills? And in some way, the answer is yes. The future promise ought to be far more powerful and sustain far more outrageous witness than I tend to opt for. I've been reminded recently of a couple of friends on the tube and the risk uh, they used to take. Um, one of them would get in at one end of the carriage in London and the other would get in at the other end. 
And uh, they'd then have this conversation all the way across the tube carriage with everyone hang- strap hanging in between, between them and say, one of them would say, so, Paul, tell me, why do you follow Jesus? And Paul, from the other end of the carriage, would reply. Um, now, it wasn't exactly conquering armies, but I've never done it. It doesn't have to be wild, but I think I could do better. Uh, with an ambition that's bigger than this life, even if it's not stopping the mouths of lions. Uh, One quote I'm going to leave you with later as we finish. Is what you're living for worth Christ dying for? Second lifestyle choice is that the, the stopping the mouths of lions was from the success end. What about the failure end? Do we all have to be sown in half? That is, do we all have to suffer extremely? Probably not. But whether we do or not should be entirely irrelevant. There's going to be more on suffering in the next couple of weeks. But let's be careful before, as Christians, we start bleating, as some are doing, about persecution of Christians in our own country. We've had a privilege as Christians for a very long time. And some of us may have a lot worse to do than have some of our privileges withdrawn. One of my Christian heroes is a missionary called Jim Elliott. He was killed at the age of 29 uh, in South America, although, in good martyr fashion, his witness well outlasted him, and those he tried to reach did become Christians. One of his lines was this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. There is something of normal in Hebrews 11, And whatever it is for you, whether it's a challenge to live with faith as success or a challenge to live as faith in failure, and you will not always know which, God give each one of us grace to live in that. As we finish, I'm just going to ask John to put up a slide and just leave those up there in quiet for a moment or two. You may decide which one of those is worth a meditation. And then I'll, uh, I think I won't close, Mike, uh, George, I'll leave you to uh, just stand up and lead us when you think it's the right time.